Welcome to season three of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. We are so happy to tell you all that's happening in the world of yoga therapy. And we love to find guests from all over the world so that we can share and learn and grow together. Some of the things that are happening in season three that we find so exciting is that not only are we continuing with the free gift that we are giving out every single week in season two, and you can see more about that in the show notes, but now we are adding a YouTube channel and you can see all of these podcasts on video. The YouTube channel is called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. Some people like to watch video. Maybe you wanna use it for one of your trainings. These videos on YouTube will be there for you to use for free. We would love your support. We have opened up a Patreon page that is going to help the podcast flourish and grow. You can help us to expand and grow and create more content for you. And we'd love for you to visit the Patreon page, which is called Optimal State and Yoga Therapy Hour Podcast. So let's go into our guest today and please nourish yourself, take time for yourself, and really relax into listening to the podcast. Each season on the podcast, we try to listen to what it is that our listeners want. And we adjust and we take away some things and we add other things. So very soon, we're going to be having a short one to two minute segment every week called the best of humanity. With all the difficulties that are happening in the world today, we feel we need to remember all the good things people are doing for each other also. So each week on the podcast, we'll be choosing someone that we saw or heard about that's doing something amazing in the world to help other sentient beings. And we'll just spend a few minutes celebrating how they're being of service through our little series called The Best of Humanity. What we'd like you to do is to dial into this number, which is 909-754-4092 and leave a two to three minute, that's all, not longer, a two to three minute audio on the voicemail telling us about someone that you think should be featured in our Best of Humanity series. And then if you give me permission, I might put your voice on the podcast telling the story for the best of humanity. Or if you tell me on the voicemail that I don't want my voice on the podcast, Amy, why don't you just repeat this and you know you can tell the story. I'll be happy to do that too. You can call in at any time, day or night. This line is not one that rings. We, we check the messages on this line and we really look forward to having you contribute to the podcast in this way, lifting all of us up to show that really good things are happening in the world and that humanity has a chance and that we as yoga therapists are on the front lines with really wonderful things happening in our field individually and collectively. So join me and be part of the best of humanity. Again, that telephone line that you can call is 909-754-4092. And it's the same number on WhatsApp. If you'd like to try to contact us through WhatsApp, you could also leave a message there. Okay. 
Thanks for contributing. We look forward to this new Best of Humanity series. Today, we're interviewing Mary Tilson from Golden, Colorado, who is going to discuss yoga therapy and 12-step programs for recovery from alcoholism, drug addiction, food addiction, shopping, technology, you name it. We all have these addictions. And this really got me thinking about how most of our addictions, at least the people that I'm seeing and what I've experienced myself, that the reason we turn to the shopping or the social media, iPhone addiction, or the alcohol at night is because we can't cope with the pressures of our lives. Many of you know that I retired in May, 2022 from 25 years of teaching at a university. And I have to say the last two years of teaching during the COVID pandemic were more than my system could handle. I could not stay self-regulated in a dysfunctional system that did not support its teachers and therefore did not support the students. And so to finally be able to retire from that and go into my yoga work where I have a lot more ability to work with my schedule, I can go to the bathroom when I need to, which I couldn't do when I was teaching. I can go get a sip of water. I can lie down for 10 minutes. I can regulate myself throughout the day. And there's so many people out there that just don't have that ability. Their job does not allow them to take a break or to hydrate or to eat anything. And of course we end up dysregulated. And then when we get out of balance, the natural thing that Ayurveda tells us is that we crave things that make us even more out of balance. And I can say that those last few years at the university, no matter how hard I tried to stay regulated, I really couldn't. And I think that's something important for us to think about because Mary has a really important message that self-regulation and the ability to cope with our lives is as much external as it is internal. And of course, we have control over what's going on inside of us, but also we might need to look at our situation and say, is this something that is sustainable for me long-term? And the really hard part about that is many of us don't feel we have an out to do anything else because our life and livelihood and family and mortgage depend on us staying in these dysfunctional healthcare systems or education systems or corporate entities that pay our bills. And it's a really tough nut to crack. It's really challenging. So I'm happy to introduce you to Mary. She has so many interesting things to say. She's so humble and willing to share her story. And I'm honored to have around the podcast. I would love to welcome Mary Tilson from Golden, Colorado in the United States. Welcome, Mary. We're happy to have you here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. This is Mary and I's third attempt. <laughs> Both had power outages go out at different times and I think the universe wanted us to be here on this day together. And, you know, Mary is going to enlighten us about her personal and professional journey around yoga therapy and recovery. 
So Mary, take us all the way back to the beginning. Maybe that was like your, your corporate career. What was going on in your life that kind of eventually led you down this path? Yeah, sure. Well, I'll try to condense the story. <laughs> so I don't take up the whole podcast episode talking about it, but I would say, you know, it started early on. I was lucky enough. My mom exposed me to yoga from a young age, from watching her practice to DVDs in our house. And I would go to classes every once in a while with her when I was a kid, but it never really stuck until in 2010, I was a student at the University of Colorado and I had been drinking pretty heavily from the time I was an early teenager. And then I started getting more into other substances and I had a bit of an inner crisis moment and I ended up leaving school to go home for outpatient treatment for addiction. And during that time, I was completely secretive about it. I had so much shame. I was going to try to figure myself out in this sixth window of time. I took a little hiatus. I left Colorado and back to Chicago where my family was at the time. And in the midst of doing this outpatient treatment program, I started going to yoga regularly, going to these classes. I was very fortunate that the teacher in our community was deeply rooted in yoga philosophy and wove so much wisdom into the classes and really created this sense of community. And so I started to feel such a sense of safety and connection in those moments. And I just knew that yoga was going to have a really powerful impact on my life from that time on. And although after that short stint with treatment, I did go back to substances. I went back to school. I continued using, but yoga was this safe space that I could go to. And I really do believe that having that regular practice was what eventually allowed me to see clearly and to recognize that I, I did have an addiction and I did need to address it. So, you know, fast forward three years later, I was back in outpatient treatment. At that time, I was working a corporate career in Chicago in digital advertising. And, you know, it was amazing because as soon as I finished that outpatient treatment program, which was based around 12-step philosophy, I put myself in yoga teacher training, not with the intention of becoming a yoga teacher, but with the intention of going deeper into my practice and quite frankly, to fill the time that I was previously filling with drinking and, you know, being in all these social environments around alcohol. It was like, I need to fill up this time. And what was amazing to me, I'll never forget, we were handed this very simple overview of the eight limbs, like in a worksheet. Mm -hmm. And we start to go through it. And I feel such a strong sense of familiarity. Like I've, I, I've heard this before. And there was such a strong connection with the 12 steps. It wasn't worded exactly the same, but, and I could go into detail about what all the overlap is, but I thought surely somebody has made this connection before. This is not just me recognizing this. And at the time, even in my yoga teacher training where, you know, it was intended to be such a safe space to be vulnerable. I wasn't really open about my recovery with the people in that community. So I got to do my little Google searching. So I went off and I'm like, yoga and 12 steps. And fortunately, I quickly came across Kitsuki Hawk's book, Yoga of 12 Step Recovery, I think is the name, which I believe came out in that same year, 2013. And Nikki Myers, who has become one of the most influential people on my recovery journey and as a teacher as well. She is the founder of Yoga 
for 12 of 12 step recovery. She's a yoga therapist, a somatic experiencing practitioner. And that really opened me up to the world, this, this combination of not only the cognitive and spiritual tools of 12 step recovery, but also the somatic piece, which as you and your listeners will know is such an essential piece to address when working with recovery. So I continued really exploring that. Interestingly, I had these two paths kind of happening simultaneously where I was still feeling a lot of kind of secrecy and protection around my addiction recovery. But fortunately, there was this whole world I was opening up into of yoga therapists and people who were really bringing these worlds together. So that led me to Tommy Rosen, who does Recovery 2.0. Dr. Jamie Modich has written some amazing books like Trauma and the 12 Steps. And, you know, I was also, I started to teach yoga and meditation retreats. So I left Chicago and I moved overseas to Southeast Asia. And it was, it took a few years, you know, and I think a lot of people experience this where at a certain point, like the shame that we feel and this privacy and need to protect like the desire to share and put that out in the world eventually overtakes that. And I've had that conversation with a lot of other teachers and people in the space. So it was a few years in that I led my first workshop combining yoga and recovery work. And it's just sort of slowly evolved from there to the point where now that really is my core focus is how can I share recovery work and use, draw on all of these tools that we have available now. Okay. I I wrote down about 13 questions in there. (laughs) I guess my first one is the somatic piece of recovery. Why is that so important? What, what happened in your body that made you understand addiction and recovery is not just a cognitive problem, but that having embodiment while going through recovery is critical. Yeah, that's such a good question. And I think it's it's such an important one for people to understand. I really think I had direct experience with it before I recognized what was happening. And it's funny because I remember, like I said, when I was much younger and I went to yoga with my mom, I would hear these things that I thought yoga teachers say, these sort of out there things about emotions living in our hips and and I would just be like, oh gosh, you know, this yoga teacher language, this yoga teacher speak. And that's what's made me, I think that skeptical part of my mind is what has made me so fascinated in learning about how the somatic piece really does relate to this conversation and why it really is so powerful. And so, you know, in my direct experience, I'll say when I really committed to my recovery and I was ready to make the decision to get sober in 2013, And I was going, I remember there was a Saturday morning class that I would go to and the class was, the the class was strong in a very slow, intentional way. But I, first of all, I remember that ability to be in my body and be presented like very confronted with this feeling of wanting to, you know, drop out of the pose or, and just realizing that I could lean into my breath and that I could really utilize these tools to build a sense of inner strength and resilience and find calm in those challenging situations. So I started to feel like for one, in my own direct experience, 
yoga was like a simulation for what I was experiencing off the mat. And I could just naturally feel that I was getting, feeling stronger and more resilient and navigating some of the challenges of life off the mat. And then I'll also say why the somatic piece is so important is because thanks to the work of people like Gabor Mate and Bessel van der Kolk, we know that beneath the addiction, there is, you know, some form of trauma or pain. I love Gabor Mate says, you know, we should be asking not why the addiction, but why the pain. And we also know that trauma is stored in our body. You know, we experience life through our body. And so we can't really leave the body out of the conversation. So I think on the one hand, there's the healing piece, healing what some of the underlying root causes of addiction. But then in terms of relapse prevention, the body is this incredible tool because I always encourage people in recovery to get on your mat every single day, if even in the morning, if it's just a very short practice, because if you can really tune in to what's going on inside, your body is like a barometer and you can feel when you're starting to be dysregulated, you can feel some of those underlying conditions that lead us to be more vulnerable to cravings or, you know, seeking the seeking ways to disconnect or numb out. We can tune into that much, much sooner. And then we have the tools to self-regulate. Absolutely. I mean, this, this connection to people like Bessel van der Kolk and the body keeps the score. And of course the wonderful Gabor Mate. I, I think that is, you know, it's such an interesting idea that probably most of us have trauma stored in our body, that trauma is perceived by the person. It doesn't have to mean there was some huge event or some horrible thing, but if in that moment as a a young child, it was traumatic to you, maybe somebody made fun of the shirt you were wearing and you no longer felt comfortable in your skin. I mean, it's not about the actual event. It's about how it was perceived and the support we may or may not have had to process and digest that event. And I think What's really cool about yoga and yoga therapy is that even as adults, we can go back and digest that, whether we remember what happened or maybe it's kind of buried down into our subconscious, something about breath, movement, focus, concentration helps us to basically even out the score in our bodies. Do you have anything to say about that? Yes. You know, I love that you explain trauma in that way, because I have to say, when I first started learning about the relationship between addiction and trauma, my immediate response was, oh, I don't have that. Like, oh, that doesn't apply to me because my mind went to war or some of these really big life events that we think about. And so, yeah, redefining it as, you know, what overwhelms your capacity in that moment, I think has been really eye-opening for me. And yeah, exploring exploring that relationship between pain and trauma is huge because like I think often of the last couple of years and you know the way that we've seen addiction numbers rise and alcohol use rise, it's such an incredible case study for our human response and I think there's so much room for compassion there too because when we understand the relationship between pain and trauma and substance use and addiction, 
it's a completely natural human response. Like when we're in unbearable circumstances, of course we want that sense of relief, you know? And I think this conversation is so incredibly important because we still do have this stigma around addiction. And, you know, if we're, if we're really placing this on the individual without asking ourselves, what are the underlying conditions? What are the environmental conditions? What experience has this person gone through that has led them down this path? Then I think we're really, we don't really have the same ability to address what's really going on. Hey, did you know that Optimal State has a special course to help you learn Yoga Nidra? The first course is free. It's called 12 Days of Yoga Nidra, and you can find it at www.optimalstateyoganidra.com. And if you like that and you want to add becoming a Yoga Nidra facilitator to your skill set, no matter what job you do, which might be being a mom or a nurse or a therapist or a yoga teacher, we would love to train you in our six-month Yoga Nidra facilitators course. Again, www.optimalstateyoganidra.com. We hope you'll join us. Absolutely. I'm sure you've heard of this, this study where they have mice or rats and the conditions in one of the cages is really horrible and there's not enough food and it's dirty in there and it's dark or, you know, they, they basically made it a very bad situation and they put regular water and then basically like cocaine water in there. And all the rats just immediately started self-medicating with the cocaine water. And then they had a very similar situation, but they made it nice and clean and they gave them the right food and they took care of these little mice and they still had the Coke water and the regular water. And guess what? Nobody touched the cocaine water. Nobody needed to self-medicate in that clean, nice, fresh cage. Have you heard that study before? Yes. Yes. I remember Johan Hari mentioning that in, he, he did a Ted talk where he was talking about, you know, the relationship really like we should, we should not, we should be addressing, you know, looking at how the role connection plays in healing from addiction connection, not only on an individual level, but within our communities. And we can't really do that when we're ostracizing people and, you know, excluding them or judging them, stigmatizing them. So, yeah, I think that it's, it's such a powerful study. And I think it's so important to be having those conversations. Yeah. There's another author named Sebastian Younger, who basically has done research on PTSD and the people who heal after coming out of the military from their PTSD are the ones who have a support structure at home and in their community. The people who don't heal from PTSD are the people who didn't have loved ones to process that with and to hold them essentially in their suffering. So I Mm -hmm. think this idea you bring forward about, it's not just the individual's responsibility to heal themselves, that it's actually our collective responsibility to come together. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what's so beautiful about, you know, programs like 12 step recovery, the AA community, there's obviously so many more than that. And we see it present in, you know, yoga and Buddhism, like this emphasis on the community, the Sangha, the the bringing of people together and the role that we play in each other's healing. And I think it's like, to me, that's one of the most essential pieces. And I'll say 100% 
in my own recovery, the biggest barrier I would say from that first time, cause it was about a period of about three years from the first time I saw professional treatment for addiction to when I actually got sober and decided to make that decision for myself. The biggest barrier in my mind was I'm going to be alone. I'm going to be judged. I'm not going to have friends anymore. It was all about that. That was the story. It was the fear of isolation. It was the feeling of disconnection. Of course, there was the you know, the dependency I had built on these substances also, which needed to be worked through. But that's something that I feel so passionate about is how can we like create more open conversations, inclusive spaces, make it more welcoming for people to connect with recovery communities, but also not feel so alone in the wider society just because they choose to live a sober life or, you know, are, are going through these things, which can, can be very isolating. So let's let's touch on that because I'm pulling up your website right now. Can you see it? Yes. And Moon Sober Living. And it basically says, learn to quit drinking and build a fulfilling life alcohol-free. And it's just a beautiful website, by the way. You're a really great businesswoman. But oh, thank you. Tell us, tell us like what I, I see group coaching, I see private coaching, I see meditation courses. Tell us kind of what, I, I know that we're talking about yoga therapy and we'll we'll do that too, but what is the Sober Curious movement and how are you participating in that through your business? Yes, thank you for asking. And this is such a big, interesting topic because, you know, I think historically we've seen addiction and, you know, alcohol use disorder as a very black and white thing. People tend to see themselves as normal drinkers, people who can drink like a normal person and the other group, the people who have a problem. And, and yes, it's, there is alcohol use disorder. You know, it's, it's recognized. There are people who are absolutely fall into that category. And there's also this whole spectrum of people that are struggling with substances that are using substances to cope as maladaptive coping mechanisms. And unfortunately, and you know, whether that is coping with the stressors of daily life of being a working mother and just being stretched so far beyond their capacity of, you know, all different types of things that happen. And so my intention was with this space was to really create an inclusive open space to have these conversations, recognizing that on the one hand, AA and the 12 steps have been so supportive in my recovery journey. And I will always encourage people to seek support if that aligns with them. And there's this whole group of people that are, you know, using alcohol in a way that is causing harm in any sort of degree in their life. I mean, what we know about alcohol and the way it affects the human body and the mind, it causes harm no matter how much of it you consume. It's how much suffering are you you know, willing to accept in your life? But I wanted to create a space where we could both address, you know, the sun and the moon is to both address the, the challenges, the kind of like the difficulties that bring us into recovery, but also the bright side of sober living and make that a more open conversation and make it feel a little bit less scary and more approachable for people to seek support. And so in doing that, I wanted to, first of all, the reason that, you know, I find podcasts to be so amazing, like you having one here is that 
people can tune in and on a conversation about recovery, for example, which they might be really afraid as I was to approach these conversations, you can tune in and listen to two people having a very open dialogue on the podcast. I have a lot of people that share their personal stories with of recovery and get really honest about, you know, all the highs and lows that have come with it share resources and tools. So I wanted people who are kind of in a place of still being very curious and maybe not willing to openly talk about it or address that they have something going on to be able to tune into those conversations. Also have a safe space for people to join meetings. So I host meetings where people, we always start with a meditation and breathing practice, tuning into our bodies and then time to discuss and share our experiences. And then I also have a more in-depth course that really takes people through an education on different core pillars of sustainable recovery. Okay. Did you get business coaching? Cause you have it <laughs> figured out, you know, <laughs> I see people in our optimal state business course three years later, not able to put these kind of chunks together that are so supportive of the pain points of the people you're trying to serve. Oh, well, thank you. I always, I think it's, I think it's, and I'd be interested to hear your perspective on this too, but what's been so natural and made this so easy is that I can identify so directly and clearly with the mindset, like the person who's just tuning in and listening from a difference a distance and is never going to hop on the zoom call, never have their face shown. Like I know that person because I was her too, you know, and it's like these different stages. And I think once you can identify so clearly with that, it's really easy to say, oh, I know what this person needs, you know? Yeah. And I, I love that it came out of your own honest exploration of your own suffering. I think that's how people like Nikki Myers and Tommy Rosen, and they've come to these really amazing ways of being service to the world because they let go of the shame and said, here's who I am. Here's what happened to me. I'm here to be of service to you. And that, yes. that actually takes a lot of courage. And it's not easy to admit that I too was at rock bottom. I remember hearing Nikki Meyer's story at the Symposium of Yoga Therapy Research Conference that we have. And she just laid it out there. And I think everyone's jaws dropped like, wow, she is a very honest, courageous person that we all admire. Oh my gosh. I cannot say enough positive things about Nikki. And I completely agree with you. Her introduction, I could listen to her introduce herself. And that like that in itself is so healing because the way that she does that is, you know, she says, I'm Nikki Myers, an alcoholic. I'm an addict. I'm a survivor of sexual assault. And I'm an MBA and I'm the founder of Y12SR and she just owns the whole story. She owns all of it. And I think that in itself, just seeing someone who can fully own all sides of themselves is really what the healing journey is all about. And I actually remember being in a training with her once where she had us do this practice where we were, you know, we were kind of identifying these different parts of ourselves and just body tracking, like notice, noticing how our inner kind of physiology changed as we shared different parts of ourselves. And for me, like, I never thought that I was going to be able to openly talk about being a yoga teacher and being someone who struggled with addiction. 
and use drugs. You know, I thought it was like the idea of those things, holding space for both of those in the same conversation was just, it was like, I could feel myself, like my heart racing and my breath getting shallow. And so to just notice that shift, you know, I I remember her saying like, I could say that I'm, I've been a commercial sex worker with the same inner feeling as telling you that there's a Toyota in my garage, you know, and she meant it. And I just thought, wow, like that is what these tools can lead us towards, you know, is that absolute integration of self and just feeling so accepting and, and okay with ourselves. And that to me is what's so incredibly inspiring. You know, it's not really like the symbol of perfection that we sometimes see or tend to kind of idealize with what yoga is supposed to give us. To me, it's like being in the energy of people who are so accepting of themselves is inspiring beyond belief. Radical self-acceptance. You know, I always cringe a little bit when a yoga therapist or a yoga teacher kind of shows up as perfect and is on the pedestal. You know, that's not true. Right. (laughs) We've all got those little demons in us and we all have our, you know, stuff going on in there. I just don't trust that anyone is enlightened. So, yeah. And in my experience, like there's, I feel so safe in the company of people who have accepted themselves and are being really honest with who they are. And I mean, we don't obviously don't need to expose all of ourselves to every single person on the street, you know, but but there is a feeling of like real genuine connection and safety and non-judgment in the company of somebody who's not placing that judgment on themselves or feeling a need to, you know, hide certain parts of themselves away. And, you know, I'm not that far from Los Angeles and I've observed over the last couple of decades that the, the yoga teachers that are trying to prop themselves up and appear to be perfect or not have any problems in secret. I hear them tell me that I can't sleep and I'm on anti-anxiety medication and I'm on depression medication. And not that I think there's anything wrong with any of those, but let's talk about it. Let's just bring it out in the open so that we don't have to pretend anymore. Yeah. There's a quote that says something like shame can't survive in safe spaces, you know, to be, when we, when we, and that's really like, again, to me, one of the most healing things was being in recovery groups, being in group therapy, being in recovery meetings and just hearing stories and really seeing myself in these stories in all different types of people, all different walks of life. You know, it doesn't really like addiction does not discriminate. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter where in the world you're born, what your career title is, you know, it, it, it doesn't discriminate. And sometimes we actually need to hear that and be in those spaces and allow that to be like, it's one thing, the idea is one thing, but to actually go and sit in meetings and hear those stories and be reminded of that and experiencing our shared humanity firsthand is incredibly healing. Shared humanity. That's, that's it. So earlier you talked about this kind of eight limbs worksheet that you were like, wow, this seems so familiar. And in your mind, it was kind of tied into maybe the 12 step program. So first question I have, had you heard that the Oxford group who came up with the 12 steps 
actually studied with Vivekananda. So that's something that I learned through Nikki's training after after I, I started to dig a little bit deeper. That's something that I started to learn about, that there actually is this connection, that it's not just some fluke, but there is a direct relationship, which is incredible. Yeah. So what were some of the things in the 12 steps or the eight limbs? What were some of the things that were just like, oh my gosh, this goes together. You remember way back then? Oh yeah, definitely. I think one of the really big things is this idea of spiritual surrender. And because the reason that it jumped out so much to me was that one of the biggest roadblocks for people or barriers to overcome in working the 12 steps is there's mention of the word God and higher power, admitting that you're powerless and that your life has become unmanageable, powerless over alcohol and your life has become unmanageable and coming to believe that a higher power could restore us to sanity. And this idea of handing your will over to a higher power and it's, it's a big barrier for a lot of people and understandably so a lot of people have religious trauma or, you know, a lot of different things wrapped up in that. And the way that that was explained to me, this idea of surrender was very much supported by the way that you hear surrender. This concept explains through yoga, also Buddhist philosophy touches on it too we were starting to have some in-depth conversations about what does it mean to surrender to something that's beyond our control? You know, not that we as humans are powerless, but the absolute power that comes from surrendering when you really are outside of your control, when a situation is beyond your control to surrender, there's actually a huge amount of power and wisdom in that. So I thought that there was a you know, those conversations happening, you know, in both of those spaces really supported each other. And that was a huge similarity because I fortunately had a great mentor that helped me work through the 12 steps because my first interpretation and seeing the word God, it's not that I was opposed to the word God, but I associated it with Christianity and the church. And while that was in some way part of my upbringing, I didn't really like have such a strong connection to it. So it was like, that seems like kind of unstable foundation to put my sobriety on because like, I don't have this amazing relationship with God yet, you know? So I think that was one, that was one major piece that jumped out to me right away. Also this, how that progressed then, because a lot of people get stuck in that gap of, okay, I'm supposed to surrender to this thing that I don't even really think exists or you know, like, how did you get over that hump before we go any further? Do you remember? Yeah, I do remember it. Well, I think the first thing was I started to recognize that, and I recognize this in myself and in the stories that I was hearing in the recovery rooms, people would talk about this moment, the spiritual moment, divine intervention, whatever you want to call it, that moment of awakening where people just come to clarity and you hear these miraculous recovery stories of somebody who has been addicted to heroin for 10 years and crack and everyone around them thinks their life is hopeless. And, you know, they've had all these tools and resources come at them. And there's this, this area, like we know certain things that work right for addiction recovery. We have all these different tools. And then there's this space, there's this mysterious space 
And that is what I'm so moved by. And that's how a lot of people, you know, when we talk about the word God, some people call it, you know, the great mystery, higher power, goddess, whatever the universe. And that always really fascinated me. I was always so moved when I would hear these recovery stories. I just felt like there was some something else that was just so beautiful and unexplainable. And another thing, another key thing was that somebody said to me, God doesn't have to be what you thought it was previously from the church. Why don't you look to nature? And I didn't really get what they meant. I mean, I didn't really have such a relationship with nature. I was living in Chicago. I was working in a cubicle in a high rise building under artificial lights. But I'll say like months later, after I got sober, I went on this journey to Southeast Asia and I will never forget. I was doing this 21 day trek through the Himalayas called the Annapurna circuit. Mm -hmm. And I had this moment and, and I will say moments because it's continued to happen of just absolute awe and, you know, feeling connected to something so much greater than myself. And I think higher power for some people is nature. It's those spiritual experiences in nature. It's, you know, it's contemplating this idea, like how does the tiny seed turn into the the giant oak, that universal intelligence? It can be so many things. And I think, you know, this conversation about spirituality, it really is deeply personal. And it's a it's a it's something that we all need to kind of explore and be open to for ourselves. So I know that's not a direct answer, but I hope that helps. <laughs> It is. And I think, you know, when we go back to the Vedas, God was nature, you know, it's kind of like full circle to what the original intention of yoga and a yogic lifestyle and the the Indian philosophies were about, right? That this idea of a personal God, who's somebody, you know, in the sky with a white beard that we can ask for, you know, certain Christmas presents, like that's, that's a pretty recent invention in human history. Exactly. Exactly. And it makes me sad that it seems to be a big barrier. And I think now a lot of people I've been hearing that younger generations are much more resistant, you know, to the word God. And there's a lot of, and it can be so divisive. And I, I find, yeah, just to expand our definition of, of that word, you know, some people say, uh, good orderly direction, or they have different ways to look at the word God as in using it as an acronym. But yeah, it's funny because, and so many of the mystics and, you know, philosophers and poets over the years have spoken about their relationship with nature too, as a spirituality. But I remember I was working at a yoga and meditation retreat center in Cambodia, and we would always start before meals. We would always pause and read some poetry. And the founder of the center, Joel, would read like Hafez or Rumi. And I remember a lot of the poems had the word God. And I always kind of looked around and I was trying to scan what people's reactions were going to be because I was always aware that that word is so charged for people. And of course, in that poetry, it's not referring to, you know, that form which you described like a man in the sky, but more, you know, as we've been describing with spirituality and this higher power. But it is a very interesting topic that I love to open up conversation about because I think spirituality can be so healing and developing a relationship with a higher power can be really, really healing. And so it's worth 
you know, talking about and exploring for ourselves. Yeah. What else? What, uh, what other kind of Indian philosophy overlapped with 12 steps kind of stood out to you and was kind of awe inspiring? Yeah. So definitely this idea of self-study Swadhyaya and I'm always cautious of my pronunciation, but this idea of self-study is a huge part of the 12 steps and also discipline. So the tapas, you know, with 12 step recovery, you're supposed to be attending 90 meetings in 90 days. There's a lot of, there's a lot of discipline within there. And I love that about the yoga practices too, is, you know, showing up in our practice and creating this structure because that's incredibly important for people in recovery. So that was a huge thing. The role of community, the Sangha and, you know, in, in recovery, that's a huge thing huge part, not only just attending meetings and, you know, we've talked about the value of being in community, but also there's this relationship with a sponsor and somebody who can walk you through the steps Mm -hmm. and this idea of service as being a core piece of your own healing and your own path to liberation and freedom from addiction, this role of service. So those were the biggest things that stuck out for me. And I would say that more and more layers keep revealing themselves. And what I love about both yoga philosophy and 12 step is that we are allowed to define those for ourselves. Like Mm -hmm. it's not this dogma that you have to see it this way, or you're a bad Christian, or you have to see it this way, or you're a bad yoga person. The, the journey is where it's at the, the exploration of that self-reflection and who am I and how do I want to show up and where have I disappointed myself and where would I like to go in this life? You know, like that's what we're doing. Absolutely. And that there's no end point. So within the 12 steps, you don't end at step 12 recovery is always spoken about in the present tense. It's a continuous process. It's something that we do daily and we have practices throughout the day. And it's the same with yoga. We don't, we don't really get to an end point. Well, most people don't on there. We're really, we're taking this practice is something that we live our life by. So that was another really big thing that stuck out to me. And it's been really interesting for me. I'll say too, to observe now with sobriety, it's a much more open conversation now. And there's a lot more approaches than just the 12 steps and AA. And there's also some criticisms of that. And, you know, some people don't like the idea that they're always going to be in recovery or assuming a label of being an alcoholic or an addict. And I find that conversation to be really interesting because it's not to say that there is no one size fits all for recovery and what works for one person, what might not work for another. But I think, again, it's just open to interpretation. So for some people, you know, on a personal level, I think that there's a huge level of humility and acceptance that comes along with recognizing I am an alcoholic. I'm someone who struggles with addiction and I'm okay with that. I can own that part of myself. I can accept it. I can, you know, it's it's that idea of surrender and I'm not going to keep trying to moderate. I'm not going to see, I'm not going to keep testing the waters of something that is proven so clearly is not working for me and instead focus on what I can control. But for other people, you know, that is a complete barrier to 
getting sober and healing. And so, you know, there's other paths for that person too. Mary, do you think it's possible to have that humility and and know that certain things in this world are just not going to work for you in this lifetime and also not become over-identified with being an AA or over-identified with being an alcoholic as if that is such an important part of your being that it's limiting you. Can, can you have both? Can you have the humility and this inner knowing that you are all expansive, awe-filled being? Yes, absolutely. And it's a really big conversation right now. You know, some people have now we're kind of moving away from this word alcoholic and people are focusing more on like the term alcohol use disorder and, and not really assuming labels and limiting. And I was actually just listening to a really interesting talk between Gabor Mate and Rich Roll. And it was interesting because Rich Roll comes from the perspective of somebody who's been in AA and he does find value in that label and identifying as an alcoholic. And Gabor Mate's position was that, you know, assuming that label and placing that identity on someone is less beneficial. And I totally see both sides. And I think that you can absolutely, I'm not someone to say, you must call yourself an alcoholic. You must realize that you have a problem or you're in denial and you haven't integrated all parts of yourselves. Absolutely not. I think that again, it kind of goes back to that conversation of recognizing if we can just ask the honest question to ourselves, like, why am I using this substance? What need am I trying to fulfill? What am I trying to numb out from? And if we can just be really honest with ourselves, then we can get the same, we can still experience the same healing. We can still free ourselves from this substance. We can develop more effective ways to self-regulate and move through the challenges of life. And we don't need to assume any sort of label. So I think it's it's really important for us to just be open-minded and ask what works for people. I love what you're saying. I, I remember as a university professor getting older and every year the 17 year olds are coming in and it was getting to the point where it was just too much for me. Like I just couldn't keep up with that much (laughs) prana and I was starting to get in chronic pain and, and going to sugar. And instead of beating myself up for having the baked good at the end of the day, because I was so depleted and needed something to even get my blood sugar up enough to drive home. I did exactly what you said. I asked myself, even though I say I don't want to eat sugar. And then the next day I end up with sugar. What is the underlying unmet need? And I was really able to have some compassion for myself those last two years that I still needed that job for healthcare. And I still had to push through it. And I ended up eating sugar almost every day because it was the only way I could cope. And, and the, the true root of the problem was lack of self-regulation in a system that didn't support me to have self-regulation, you know, teaching eight hours straight with nothing to eat or drink or time to go to the bathroom. Most people would get out of regulation, right? Absolutely. So I feel like when I accepted that this is not a personal moral flaw, it's not that I don't have willpower but I'm in a sick system that I need to stay in for two more years. And then finally last May, I was able to separate from that. 
I think there's so many nurses, so many doctors, so many teachers, so many stay-at-home moms, as you said, that the environment that they're in is unsustainable and the coping mechanism is addiction. And we can't just take away the coping mechanism and think things are going to be better. You can't just take away the alcohol. Like you've still got the problem. What do you think of that? A hundred percent. I think it's really important to acknowledge. And, you know, I always do with people. It's like, I completely understand why people who are completely stressed after a long day of work, taking on way too many responsibilities than any human possibly could while also getting enough sleep and being properly nourished. Of course, I understand why the first thing they want to do is go home and pour a glass of wine because in the moment it does work. You know, I don't promote it, but for that short window of time, it's just the very unfortunate thing about that is that we know that the way that alcohol impacts our brain chemistry, it actually produces anxiety in the long term. You know, it offsets that balance in our brain. So we are more on edge and more anxious. And so I think compassion is incredibly important and understanding the why behind we drink, why we drink. And it's not just you know, another reason that that's so important is because you could remove the substance in that situation. And if you don't under, if you don't address the underlying reason, it will just be another coping mechanism. You know, some people get, they remove alcohol from their life and then they become addicted to work and it's celebrated by our culture. Unfortunately, workaholism is something that you actually get rewarded for, but it's still, it can be detrimental to your health or it's transferred to disordered eating or whatever that might be. So you know, like you said, the compassion piece and understanding how we got ourselves in this position. And, and you know, the other amazing tie-in between these ancient practices is that they've been saying, you know, describing these afflictions and these, these very human conditions for thousands of years. This is not something new to us, you know, these attachments and cravings and it's, it's not new to our modern world. That's what really amazes me. And there's so much room for compassion there too, right? Cause it's like, this is just, this is being human. Yeah. I'm just loving this conversation. <laughs> so, so do you mainly work with individuals? Do you work with groups? Do you go on retreats? Like what is your modality that you help people do this kind of self-analysis and deeper understanding of what their coping mechanisms are and how do you unpack it? Yeah. So prior to the pandemic, before borders closed for about a little over six years, I was traveling around full time teaching yoga and meditation retreats and facilitating those in natural environments where people could reconnect with nature. And we do daily yoga, meditation, some workshops around the philosophical piece and all of that. But since, and that was more general, so it wasn't necessarily specifically addressing addiction, but interestingly, a lot of, a lot of conversations around this topic came up in those settings. But since the last couple of years, I've transitioned to working specifically with people in a recovery space. So I do one-on-one coaching and usually that's people, I mean, for some people joining a group is just not where they're at or what they're comfortable with. Sometimes that's related to their own personal experiences and things that are, you know, everybody has different lived experiences and some, you know, unfortunately we live in a world where some are 
deemed more socially acceptable to talk about and we're more comfortable talking about the stresses of work than, you know, other things that people might be going through. So I, I find that some people are just more comfortable working one-on-one. And then I also do groups where people can share in a group setting and the group coaching program that I do, I also have a chat group, which is nice because it means that as things are coming up day to day, we meet weekly, but people can share, you know, I'm going to an office party and I know there's going to be tons of alcohol around. I'm kind of known as the drinking person in the office. What do you guys think I should do? You know, and it's great to have that sort of like community feedback and bouncing ideas off each other. And also I think the community piece, the group piece too, I love is that we can celebrate each other. And that's a really, really important piece of behavior change is celebration. And I find that a lot of people, because of the amount of shame that's wrapped up in addiction and just kind of gray area drinking, a lot of people struggle to see what an amazing accomplishment it is to get through a day sober. And so I find like, I'm always trying to reinforce that. It's like, celebrate the tiny wins. And I love, you know, the work of BJ Fogg, who's a behavioral scientist who wrote the book, Tiny Habits. Like he talks about celebration as one of the most important pieces of behavior change. And so like taking the time to just be in that space of feeling really good, even if it was just, you know, getting through the first half of the day without, you know, without thinking about alcohol or having a drink or whatever that is, everything deserves to be really acknowledged and celebrated. And that's part of reinforcing these changes. So I love that. We spend so much time in shame and punishment and what's wrong with me and how come I can't do this. But the day that you actually make it through without the drink or the smoke or the food or the shopping, we don't give ourselves credit for that. We don't even, it's like this blip, like, okay, I only made it one day, you know? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Especially like when you look around and you recognize how much is reinforcing addictive behaviors in our culture, how vulnerable we are to this constantly. I mean, that not only helps with forming compassion, but it's like, wow, I really resisted a lot of either subtle or very strong messaging that was trying to encourage me to engage in these addictive behaviors, whether it is, you know, constantly picking up social media and, or alcohol or sugar, whatever it might be like any time that you're able to resist that, because yeah, I think in so many ways, our society makes us very, very vulnerable to engage in addictive behaviors. And so it really is. Yeah. It's something worth celebrating. Do you still have days where you're, you kind of feel hopeless or feel like maybe I can't do this anymore. Do you have, you know, crisis moments or self-doubt moments around your recovery? Well, my personal recovery. So when it comes to substances, like when it comes to alcohol and I was also dependent on Adderall for work and was using cocaine, like I don't have any sort of desire to go back to that, but going back to the idea of like the root and those addictive behaviors, I definitely can sense when I'm channeling that into something else, whether it's my relationship with food or caffeine or technology, like I can feel, I know that like underlying current that's behind those things. And, you know, I remember I was talking to a friend recently and I was saying, like, I was questioning, I was like, I think I'm drinking too much caffeine. And they were like, oh my gosh, like you are, 
you know, you've given up everything, like go easy on yourself and have a coffee already. (laughs) And I do like, I have no shame around my coffee drinking. I enjoy drinking coffee, but it's, it's the energy behind it. And when I can feel that I'm using it for something, like I'm creating a dependency around it. And, you know, whether that's whatever that might be, whether that's caffeine or whether that's my relationship with work, like I've definitely seen myself slip into patterns where I'm kind of trying to get something out of work, like this sort of satisfaction or validation or whatever it is. And it's like that analogy of the hungry ghost. Do you know that? And in, yeah, where, you know, in, in Buddhist philosophy, there's this analogy of the hungry ghost where it's like this being that's constantly trying to feed itself, but because its neck is, is so long and thin, it can never really be satiated. And it's like that that hunger, that desire for more that that's never going to be fed through whatever the thing is that you're trying to engage with. Like that's the, that's what I can still feel myself get susceptible to sometimes, but I feel very grateful that I have so many tools in place. And I think that's what it's all about. Like we're never going to be completely free from these things. A lot of these things are linked to our survival at the end of the day, you know? So you know, there are reasons that we crave sugar and there are reasons that we engage in all these behaviors because it, you know, it's, it's linked up with our reward system and our brain. And it's, it's, yeah. So I think it's something as humans, we have to acknowledge that we're always going to be up against it, but it's more like having the tools. I feel very confident in my recovery because I have the tools that I can lean on in those moments. And that self-awareness to see what's starting to rev up and catching it kind of early, you know, I can, yeah late to that, whether it's work or caffeine of like, oh, I've got that inner churning. And I don't know about you, but it hurts. It literally hurts inside me when I'm like needing that caffeine or pushing one more hour of work. There's a, a physical sensations in my body. Yes, I completely agree. I completely agree with you. It's like that, it's like moving into disconnection. Like it's this feeling like, and to me, it's like a feeling like a being, I need something like that dependence on it. Like I'm like, yeah, that is a very uncomfortable feeling, especially I think that's the funny thing about recovery work and yoga. The more that you get into these practices, the more in tune you are with these subtleties and you're no longer numbing out from that feeling. So you know, it's, it's no longer really comfortable to zone out in front of the TV all day and, you know, lay on the couch eating chips. It's like, cause you feel the difference so intensely in your body and your mind and your energy. So I always know when it's starting to happen. Cause I'm driving down 40th street and TJ Maxx starts pulling me in <laughs> like, Oh, you probably need a little something. Don't you, honey? Yes. <laughs> feeling than just going in because I want to enjoy myself that that feeling of being pulled that I don't know if I have control or choice exactly that's exactly it and I think that's what we're like moving away from addiction it's about having freedom and the power to choose like I'm definitely not someone that is like you should you know not engage in any of the pleasures and joys of life like I'm not anti-shopping I'm not anti I mean I use social media to stay connected with my friends like I use technology I'm not for like you know, go move in a cave somewhere and meditate all day. But I think it's having a healthy relationship and feeling a sense of freedom because that is, 
that's that's the gift of this practice is is freedom to choose because we know what it feels like when it's like you know we're overindulging and in chocolate cake or something. And it's like, okay, I've gone way overboard and I, I don't even know why I'm doing this anymore. I love um, Tommy Rosen's definition of addiction and Dr. Judson Brewer, who's a neuroscientist who uses something similar, but it's basically continuing to engage in a behavior despite adverse consequences. So it's like, we know that, you know, the compulsive shopping is actually not gonna, it's no longer like getting that extra item we need in our closet, or it's just, there's a negative outcome, but for some reason, like there's something else that's driving us to do it anyway. And really getting clear on what that thing is, is where the freedom comes from. Cause then we can actually satisfy that need with something that actually works for more than five minutes. And as I'm hearing you say this, I mean, it even applies to codependency when we're our thing that we need to do to feel better, think it's going to make us feel better is controlling somebody else's life. Right. Mm -hmm. I I remember I went through a year of coaching around codependency around a family member that was living with us. And I realized, Oh, this is the exact same thing as any other addiction, but now I'm addicted to controlling this person. Right. They're okay. You know? Yes. And I've heard that defined as the disease of the lost self of just like really, yeah, it's, it's that illusion of control, right. Of feeling like you're managing a situation, but again, it's just, it's so an illusion. you know, these little things. It is. <laughs> I know it's, it's a practice it, to observe ourselves though. Right. A hundred percent. And I think that's the thing. There was a certain time where I was, genuinely, I I only realize it now looking back when I first got sober, I actually spent a year living in a yoga and meditation retreat center in Cambodia. And there was so much structure, let's say around it. There was absolutely no substances in sight. It was a non-issue. You know, we lived in these grass huts in the jungle and very removed from all the temptations. But I realized only looking back after spending that time there, that there was a period that I was genuinely afraid of myself. Like I was afraid, even though as bad as I wanted to be sober and as safely as I wanted to protect my sobriety. Cause at that point I had been in this inner battle for years and I had had so many negative outcomes from my substance use, whether they were obvious to the outside world or just crushing me from the inside. And I was so scared because I'd been through that before. I was like, I felt my mind take me places I didn't want to go. And so I didn't really trust myself, but then I realized by using these practices, by having a daily yoga practice and really applying all of these tools, we have structure in place. So we actually, we don't have to rely on willpower or we don't have to worry about, you know, these very natural human responses when conditions get really rough, because I think the pandemic is a really classic example. It's like, we never know when all of a sudden our life circumstances are going to change dramatically. And we're going to go from having a routine where we go to workout classes every day and we're outside in nature and we're doing the things that fill us up to being confined to an apartment with no fresh air, with a whole bunch of people in one room and work pressure. And we don't know when our external world is going to change. So if we have these tools and these inner resources that we know we can rely on, there's so much freedom and, and safety in that. Mary, you are incredible. You're blowing my mind today and we're coming to a close. Is there any, 
anything that you didn't get to share that you you really want to share before we tell people how they can reach you? Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much. I admire the work that you're doing so much in this space. And I think it's such a gift to have yoga therapy. It's, I think, one of the most important tools that probably is not being utilized anywhere near as enough as it should be in the addiction space. So thank you for allowing me to come on and have this conversation. And the only thing I'll say is for anyone who is, you know, questioning their relationship with substances, with addiction is to just stay really curious and open and don't feel like you need to put yourself in a box. Don't feel like you need to make a definitive statement about the rest of your life today. But if you can really stay curious and open and use these tools, I think that, you know, there is so much that we can gain just from applying the tools of yoga therapy. So yeah, that's the biggest thing. And just knowing that you're never alone in it, that support is always there and and the resources are there and there is a path to healing. So I'm bringing up your website again, in case anyone would like to work with you privately or join in one of your groups, or you have a podcast. Tell us about your podcast. If someone wants to dip their toe in a little bit without a lot of upfront commitment. Yeah. So with the podcast, fortunately, Nikki Myers, who I've referenced throughout this episode, was one of the first people that I invited to be on. And I did a little happy dance when she agreed, because as I said, she's been one of my greatest inspirations and teachers. So I have interviews with people like Nikki, who really talk about this relationship we've been talking about between yoga and addiction recovery. And then there's also just stories of people who have overcome incredible challenges in their life. There is the perspective, you know, coming more from a neuroscience perspective. So there's just a whole bunch of different stories and also educational resources from teachers in the podcast. Mm, great. So the website is sun and moon sober living.com. Yeah. And I'm pretty active on sharing stuff on Instagram too. It's at sunandmoon.soberliving. And that's a great place. I share articles all the time, LinkedIn as well, on things that are happening in the recovery space. And so if you're looking for more resources, I also share the work of other people that do, that support all different types of addictions. So you know, for example, I've had people reach out to me specifically about marijuana addiction or disordered eating. And so I've got contacts of people who specialize in those areas. So yeah, feel free to get in touch. I mean, I'm always quick to respond to people who send me messages through social platforms or on email and really happy to just do whatever I can to support. Are you on Facebook or only Instagram? I am on Facebook for the page, a little less active on there. It's hard to keep up with all the different social <laughs> platforms. <laughs> It's like I try to just focus my energy on one area, but I do need to get better about that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mary, so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you. And I'm I'm really happy to have someone from a younger generation. I'm not sure how how young or old you are, but I I to see people in their 20s and 30s interested in sober curious living yoga philosophy, yoga therapy. It's, it gives me hope for the future. Oh, thank you so much. It means a lot that you said that because that was something that I recognized is I really felt such an obligation to be more open about my story because I didn't really have anyone. That was my biggest barrier. I was like, 
nobody my age is doing this. Like I've still got to, I have all this life that I need to live that requires drinking for. So that was really, that's a big part of my intention is just giving more faces publicly to the recovery movement, because really there are so many people at a younger age group. And even now we're seeing there's so much press lately about how Gen Z is just not interested in alcohol the way that other generations have been. So that gives me a lot of hope too. Yeah. And I can think of so many people that have a child or a nephew or that are looking for something exactly like this. So I'm really grateful that you are leading this movement and and offering your suffering to humanity to be transformed into service to others. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for your support and opening up your platform to have this conversation. I've absolutely loved talking to you. So thank you. I'm so grateful that Mary was willing to share her story with us and her experience. And I think one of the main things I came out of this episode really pondering was this idea that it's not the substance that is the problem. It is that we are trying to cope with some unsustainable part of our lives. And therefore we need a substance to do that. And if we shut one substance down, just like a -a whack-a-mole, another substance will probably pop up. And that the ultimate goal is to have the freedom to choose. Am I choosing to have this glass of wine because the taste will be enjoyable and I will feel like I'm having fun with my friends and it's a little treat? Or do I have to have that glass of wine to settle down from work and to cope? And then the second one comes down a little bit too smooth and I have a headache the next morning and then repeat, repeat, repeat day after day because I just cannot cope with my life. Those are two very different situations. So it's not the substance itself. It's our relationship to that substance or the link we have And are we able to link and de-link at will? And that's the freedom. That's the freedom we're looking for. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you next week. Please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter mailing list, where we give you a free gift every single week. It's usually something that the guest has been talking about, like a book chapter or an article or an infographic. Check out the show notes for that. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, we have a new YouTube channel called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. We also have a new Patreon page where you can support us to bring you the most excellent content. And that is Optimal State and the Yoga Therapy Hour Patreon page. Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, contact us at the email welcome at theoptimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate.com. 
And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.